Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. Whether you are live or live stream, I'm Talbot Davis, the pastor here. And as I am every time we gather and every time I get to stand on this platform, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to connect with you, however it is that you are connecting with us. And this is week two of the Learning Curve series, a, a, a series in which we really get a, a PhD in what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus as we look over the shoulders of his very first apprentices. Uh, today's message, the second in the series, is, is called, Before the Devil Went Down to Georgia, He Went Up to Capernaum. And to help us go into that particular message, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to locate the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. If you are with us last week, it's the same basic section of Mark. Mark, chapter 8. Today, it's verses 31 through 33. We're, we're, we're not speed reading through this masterpiece that Mark has given us. Instead, we're, we're savoring the small morsels as we gather together each Sunday. And uh, we love it when you're, maybe your Bible looks like my Bible, maybe your Bible's loaded on your phone, maybe you don't, you don't, you don't have either of those with you, and, and if you don't, we'll have the words on the screen for you. We love all of that because we love for you to have your own visual encounter with the Bible because we, we believe that the biblical library, and don't let anybody tell you it's a book because it's not, it's a library, books written by a lot of authors over a long span of time in multiple writing styles. And when we're in the Gospel of Mark, we're, we are really in the biography section of the biblical library. Four different biographies, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but just one incomparable subject, Jesus. And that's just a fact. A lot of people don't know it, but it is the truth. Not book is library. And yet at Good Shepherd, we believe one other thing about the biblical library that we like to be real clear about. Even if our clarity means that I'm, I'm not sure I'm with you on that, Talbot. And that's okay. Because for a lot of you, that, that'll be the case. For others of you, it'll be the case. I am with you on that, Talbot. And thank you for saying it whenever we gather. But it's this that we believe there's no other library like this one, that God breathed his life into its words. He put his truth onto its pages. The Bible really is inspired and eternal and true. And because of that deeply held conviction among leadership here, when we talk about the Bible, we do this kind of strange thing. Some of you are beating me to the punch. We lift it up. And maybe you've never been here before and you're looking around the room or maybe you've never tuned in before. You're looking on the screen and you're like, that is just odd, all those people lifting up their Bibles. And we don't get the least bit defensive with that accusation. You know why? Because it is odd. It's a little strange. But we have decided this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community where a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be unleashed in our lives. Amen? And so uh, before I pray and say another word, let's pray. God, thank you for the goodness of your word. And uh, Lord, I thank you that you, uh, out of all the people you chose, you, you chose Mark a man of such incredible skill and what a gifted writer. And, and Lord, we see Mark all over his own gospel, but thank you, Lord, that you, you didn't just leave him to his own devices, you inspired him. And I ask that you would use that same Holy Spirit to fill me from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head and give inspiration to this message. Because Lord, I'm, I'm delighted to declare that I am powerless without you. 
because of you, I'm never helpless. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, something that uh, I'm real sure is true of, of you and is true of me and is true of virtually all of us uh, in this room live or live streaming is that we like to be in control. We like to have things sort of it controlled. It, it, it's why, isn't it, that when you're a, a young adult and your parents are questioning your skills at adulting, and, and you get all frustrated with them and, and how do you, you, take it easy, will you? I got it under control. It, it's why when there's some big sports game going on somewhere, like, I don't know, a, 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 some, some kind of big division rival in the NFL or the NBA, the announcers will always say, and it's a battle for control of the NFC South which is something you never hear about the Panthers anymore, but we used to hear. It's why politicians and political leaders, it's why they like to control the narrative. It's why some of you are control freaks. It's why others of you are married to control freaks because your life is so out of control. You needed, you know, you needed to find someone who had just a little bit of control. It's why the perfect metaphor, it's, it's out, why, why the perfect metaphor for so many relationships and so many relational struggles is what? The remote control. Isn't that perfect? I mean, we battle for control of the remote control to see who's in control, yeah. It's even why some of you, you started going out with that new girl and all your friends are like, hey, don't, don't go out with her anymore. Why, why, why? She's so controlling. Yeah, it's you and it's me and it's all of us. And we like to be in control of things and we don't like to feel like someone else is controlling us. And, and I bring all that up because we're on a learning curve with Jesus. And the little section that we're going to look at today is all about control. But the learning curve with Jesus is taking us uh, along with Jesus' sort of inner circle, his entourage, as they start out in a place called Capernaum and they move through Caesarea Philippi. And honestly, where this journey is ultimately going to take them is to Jerusalem and to the cross. The, the learning curve is gonna take the whole gang to Jesus's death. And the cool thing about the way that Mark writes the story is that while we're on this learning curve, we get to eavesdrop in on some conversations that Jesus had with, this, with his men while he's trying to give them this PhD course in what it means to follow him. And last week, if, if you were with us, if you weren't with us last week and you're here today, I'm so glad that you're, that you're here now. But, but last week, as some of you may remember, the, the learning curve started out when Peter, Saint Peter, he becomes the first, he, he realizes that, hey, there are a lot of questions you may get wrong, but there's only one question you must get right. And that one question you must get right is, who do you say that I am when Jesus asks it? And, and when, when Jesus asks it of Peter, Peter pops up and he's the first human being ever to get the answer right, you are 
the Savior. And with that, the confetti drops, the touchdown is scored, the, the buzzer beater goes into the basket. It's one shining moment. Oh, that's next weekend, isn't it? One shining moment. And, and Peter, in, in this moment where he's the first human being to say any of these words, he's the goat. He's like the greatest of all time follower of, he is the goat and nothing's the same in the gospel of Mark after that identification. And then, and then when the snap of the fingers in the blink of an eye, Peter goes from being the goat to a goat. He, go, he goes from mountaintop to river bottom and he does it with stunning speed. And, and so you, you have to ask, well, how did all that happen? Because look at what it says just after Peter's the first one, the confetti is falling because Peter's just said, you are the Messiah. And look what Jesus does next. Verse 31 of Mark chapter eight. He, meaning Jesus, then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, meaning rejected by everybody who's religious. And then he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, a couple of these things, a couple, a couple of things to notice about what, what Jesus taught his followers just after he's been identified as the savior. This would have been not only difficult to understand for Peter, not just unprecedented, but completely incomprehensible. When, when Peter can't get it, and you'll see in just a moment just how comprehensively he doesn't get it. It's because in Peter's mind, there, there's no category for understanding a Messiah who does any of the things that Jesus said that he's going to do as the Messiah. Because for Peter and every other person who was Jewish at the time, and Peter and this entourage, they're all Jewish. In their mind, a, a, a Messiah was popular and a Messiah prevailed and, and a Messiah per, persisted. There's no way they'd be rejected. There's no way they'd suffer. There's no way they'd die. So when Peter and the others can't understand what it is that Jesus is saying here, they're not dumb. They're just completely, completely unprepared for what Jesus is going to say. And I also find it interesting that when Jesus, that, that, that Peter seems to have heard all the early things that Jesus said in, in this sentence in verse 31, but he did not hear that part about after three days rise again. That, that Peter, he, he heard all that suffering and, and, and dying and being rejected. He heard that stuff loud and clear, but the ultimate victory, he just sort of blocked out. And, and I, think that, I, I think I know why that is, that when we have a leader and we kind of want to control that leader, we, 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 we kind of want to set the agenda for that leader, and they start telling us things that we don't want to hear, we, we stop and some of you may have done this, you, you, you've done this with a boss, or you've done it with a coach, or you've done it with a pastor. When the leader we want to control stops telling us the things that we want to hear, we, we, we only hear what makes us panic more. We don't hear any of the good news that they offer. Look at the very next phrase 
First part of verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. I, I, I love that little addition. He, Cause Mark wasn't there. Mark is more than likely getting this story from Peter himself. He spoke plainly about this. So the, the categories were incomprehensible. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be a messiah, messiah who's rejected and suffers and dies. Incomprehensible. And yet there's no nuance to how Jesus actually uttered these words. He, he spoke it very, very plainly from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. I mean, that, come on 1990s, somebody's gotta say an amen for the 1990s. It's exactly, exactly how clear and how plain Jesus was. And how, how does Peter react? Remember, Peter's just become the goat. You're the Messiah. And how does he react to the Messiah's very unsettling description of what a Messiah is gonna do? Look, look at what happens in the rest of verse 32. And Peter took him aside <laughs> and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? You, you just said this guy's God. You, you just said this guy's the savior. And then you take him aside. At least Peter has the good manners and he doesn't rebuke Jesus in front of everybody else. He's like, come on, Jesus. Let's, let's, uh, uh, we we got to have, have a teaching moment. Come on, bosses, you do this with people. who. Let's have a teaching moment, but we're going to do it behind closed doors. And I got I to gotta tell you what kind of savior you're going to be, Jesus. Can, can you imagine the nerve that it, this is probably the nerviest moment in the entire New Testament, maybe the entire Bible, you are God. Now let me tell you what kind of God I want you to be. Talk about talk about a control freak. And so, how does Jesus respond to being control freaked? Look at what it says in verse thirty-three. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, I love that. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, it, what that means is Jesus is fixing to call out Peter. And yet he doesn't take Peter aside. He doesn't say, Pete, come on, Pete, let, let's go back here. I got, I got, we're gonna go to the green room and I'm gonna talk to you about, he, no, he makes this his own rebuke of the rebuker. He makes it public. He looks at the disciples and he says, everybody, y'all need to hear what I'm getting ready to say to Peter. It's the calling out to top all calling outs. And what does he say when he calls Peter out? Looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You don't have the things of God on your mind when you're trying to control me as your savior. You, you only have the things of man on your mind, Peter is say, uh, Jesus is saying. And, and look at that. Talk about going from the goat to a goat. Jesus doesn't just call Peter out. He calls him Satan. He doesn't mince words at all. I mean, it's like Peter goes from throwing a touchdown pass to throwing a pick six. From clinching the deal to losing the sale. Or in my world, from an ace to a double fault. And he does it all with this, just this head spinning, neck snapping speed. And, and so you have to wonder, what explains it all? 
What, what explains not only Peter's fall from grace, that was the farthest fall from grace in the history of falls from grace. I mean, like in a moment, he goes from being the greatest to being Satan. But what explains not only that, but just how high octane Jesus's words are. I mean, he could have chosen, there's like a million words he could have chosen to call Peter, dummy, foolish, loser. Man, he probably wouldn't choose loser, but out of all, he chooses Satan. So what's behind all that? As we ponder that, where it's taken us on, the, on our learning curve, it, it, I, I realize is, is Peter the last one to go from here to here and do so in a blink of an eye? Could there even be people within the sound of my voice live and live stream and, and you're that person and one Sunday you stood up for Jesus, you came forward for Jesus, you declared Jesus and the next day, drunk, Or you stood up for Jesus, you, you even, I'm going to go into ministry. And on the way home from church, cursed out the immigrant. Or you decided, yeah, Jesus is mine. I am, it's, it's going to cost me a lot at home, but I'm going, going to become a Christian. And then just a short time later, you are living a life of such hollowness, the despair is so heavy on you that it seems like that person who stood up for Jesus is an entirely different individual altogether. No, Peter's not the last one who goes from understanding who Jesus is with his words to denying who Jesus is with his attitude. And at the core of it all, the core of so much of Jesus's anger is the fact that Peter tries to control Jesus. And when we try to control Jesus, when we try to, hello, make him into our image, instead of being made into his, when we try to set Jesus's agenda instead of letting him define ours, he reacts strongly. He resists forcefully. And so here's, here's what we learn for, for all of you who are control freaks. Sometimes the way you try to control your mate or your kids or your boss or the people who report to you is manifest in how you try to control your savior. Here's what this learning curve shows us today. Stop trying to control Jesus so he can start defining you. Stop trying to control Jesus, stop setting Jesus's agenda for him. Start, stop making Jesus look like a great big version of you so he can start making you look like an earthly resemblance of him. Start, stop controlling Jesus so he can start defining you because we do, I don't know if you know this or not, Modern North America, it's probably global as well. I mean, we got all kinds of Jesuses in people's minds. And we got hipster Jesus. And we have radical Jesus. And we have Republican Jesus. 
We have patriot Jesus. We have Marxist Jesus. We have Democrat Jesus. We have immigrant Jesus. We have, we have Jesus is just all right with me, Jesus. What we don't have is Jesus. Jesus, who's the tiniest, tiniest slice of, of all of those and so much more than any of them. So instead of trying to compress Jesus in, into fitting, make sure that he never says that anything that makes you uncomfortable and fitting all of your preconceptions of what life should be and how a savior should act, how about you instead allow him to expand your understanding of who in fact is the God of the universe? Stop controlling Jesus so he will start defining you. It's a little bit that, like the young woman I told some of you about before who was getting baptized one time and she brought her suitcase with her to her baptism. And that's really interesting. I mean, I can see bringing a, a beach towel and a change of clothes because you're going to get all wet, but, but a whole suitcase and And so an observer at the baptism asked the pastor in charge, well, why did this young woman bring her suitcase to her baptism? And the the pastor in charge said, because her father told her that if she ever got baptized, she could never come home again. And you see the choice she made. And that's being defined by, controlled by Jesus. Stop controlling Jesus so he can start defining you. You you get to bury the control freak you got inside and you get to join the ranks of people who are controlled. Because I can tell you, it's a lot better to be controlled than to be controlling. Stop controlling Jesus. So we'll start defining you. I just, I think it's really interesting when we think about Peter and, and his interaction with Jesus and the instantaneous nature of his fall from grace, it, it, is that how it is that he missed what Jesus said about on the third day, three days, rise again. It's like Peter heard execution. He heard that part loud and clear and, and execution was so loud in his mind that he earwaxed out resurrection and, and, and I, just, I just want you all to know, and, and I want you to hear what, Jesus, what Peter did not hear, that, yeah, Jesus is going to tell you things you don't want to hear. Jesus is, <laughs> this, are you ready to be disappointed? It is very low on Jesus's list of priorities for your, your life that you be true to your authentic self. <laughs> it's even lower on Jesus's list of priorities for your life that you discover yourself. You want to discover him. You want to be true to the authentic savior. And only the only way you'll ever be all that is when you become all his. And when you get those kind of priorities right, when you hear the whole message, yeah, I, I am. De- Jesus, he's way more interested in denying yourself than discovering yourself. And yet when you realize that, when you embrace that, when you understand that the totality of Jesus's message, hello, it all does lead to there is victory in Jesus. And what are the benefits? 
what, what are the benefits of, of realizing and, and understanding that Jesus can define you, that you don't have to control things anymore, you can be controlled? Because I know so many of you have tried to control your life. How'd that, how'd that work out? Every one of you who's in recovery, there's a lot of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you had, you, you had your life in control and you just figure, I can control my drinking. I got, got it under, I got it under, stop telling me what to do, man. I got it under control. And, 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 and you gritted your teeth and you white knuckled it and, and you were gonna get that drinking under control and it never worked. That's why one of the most beautiful lines in those AA meetings is we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God. It is that relinquishing of control because we know that the harder we try to stay in control of our drinking or of our drugging or of our interneting or of our shopping or of our gambling, or you fill in the blank, the more we tried to assert control, the more we lost it. Why do you... Why do you think on most Sundays I, I begin a message with that prayer? I am powerless without you, but hallelujah, because of you, I'm not helpless. Stop controlling Jesus so he can start defining you. And I love the fact, I love the fact that Jesus's rebuke of Peter here. Can we agree, good shepherd, that if you call somebody Satan, that's a pretty big deal? <laughs> that Jesus's rebuke of Peter is not his last word to Peter. In fact, this little scene in Mark chapter eight is not Peter's final failure. He's got a lot of failures ahead and just until the cross, he's got, life is full of failure in his understanding of Jesus. And yet Jesus's rebuke here is not for the purposes of rejection. He rebukes for the purpose of restoration. I mean, think about it. All over the world, there are St. Peter's Churches, I think I understand there's even a St. Peter's College that's playing them some basketball today. There's St. Peter's stuff, churches and colleges and stuff everywhere. There's not a single one, not a one. There is no, I promise you this. You Google it, you'll, I'll be proven right. There's no St. Lucifer's Church anywhere. And that's how you know. Oh, this rebuke was not to reject. It was to restore. And if Jesus has to rebuke you, if, if these words today rebuke you, it's not for the purpose of rejection. It's for the purpose of restoration. Because Jesus knows who he is, that he is loaded up in you. And when you allow yourself to be defined, not by your income and not by your neighborhood and not by your accomplishments and not by your popularity, but you allow yourself to be defined when you understand, hey, the most important thing that ever happened in your life didn't happen in your life. It happened in Jesus's life. And when you allow the fact of his incarnation and his instruction and his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and ultimate completion, when all those are the defining realities of your life and mine, then Jesus will have brought us to the place he wants us to be on this learning curve. Can I hear an amen for that? Stop controlling Jesus. 
So he'll start defining you. And I think I know. I think I know why it is that Jesus was so vehement, so sudden in rebuking Peter. Because think about it. Peter just gave expression to what Jesus most dreaded. Because Satan himself was tempting Jesus with the exact same message that Peter was. You know, you, you don't really have to go to the cross. Surely there's an easier, softer way. Jesus, you don't have to go through all of that, but hallelujah. Jesus relinquished control even of that. He refused to be tempted by the evil one for us and for our salvation so that every one of us who says yes to Jesus and every one of us who's defined by Jesus, we get to not only be people who are controlled in the here and the now, but in his glory, in the there and the then. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. And as we pray, would you point your palms God's direction. And those open palms are a sign of the ways you are relinquishing control. Maybe of your mate, maybe of the person you're dating, maybe of your child, maybe of your parents, maybe of your own despair. Lord Jesus, our open palms are a sign that we are letting go of all that we want to control so that we will join the ranks of the controlled. And I ask, Lord, that you would fill us with the joy of surrendering not some, but all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.